Well, we're going to take our Bibles and encourage you to do so, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 as our text this morning, continuing in our series on the marks of discipleship, visible marks of discipleship. So we're going to look at this text this morning as the anchor point for uh, our time in the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 10. Let's give our attention to the Word of God being read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to learn what is pleasing to you. And we know from this passage that it is imitating you. We need your word to do that work in us. And I pray, Father, that our time ruminating on this passage of Scripture will do just that. It will conform us to the very image of your Son. That's your will for us, we know. So I pray, grant grace to both hearer and proclaimer that Christ may be exalted in this place and that we, your people, may bring glory to your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When, uh, when you're young, you spend a lot of time thinking about the future. At least that's how I remember my younger years. But as you get older, your thoughts shift to who will follow and, and what kind of legacy you'll leave. Now, a few people may be concerned about the things that they build, the farm or corporation, stuff like that. Most people, I think, think about their own children. How will they invest their lives? How will they steward what's entrusted to them? And at some point in your life, you come to realize that the person that you are has a great deal to do with the sacrifices made by those before you. That you are indeed someone's legacy, whether that's a parent or some kind of mentor. I was reminded of a song by Dan Fogelberg. He wrote these touching lyrics. He says, my life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. In coming to the world, the perfect son of God made imperfect people like, like you and me. He made us acceptable to God. 
And Jesus did that. Of course, we know the story of Scripture is by taking the eternal consequence of our sin and then ultimately defeating sin's power to control us. And so you might say that Jesus' legacy is a, a redeemed people. But those who followed after Jesus, he told them to leave a legacy. He told them, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And all of us, in a sense, are living legacies, albeit poor attempts to imitate the man, Christ Jesus. But imitate him is what we must do. Imitating him is what we are called to do. In our Bible passage, the Apostle Paul explains what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a lifelong learner, to be fully devoted as a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators. So as we look at this passage this morning, as we consider uh, this mark of discipleship, here's my simple outline, one sentence, this is it. Two points. You are loved, so walk in love. You are loved, so walk in love. That's what we are to know. That's what we're to do. And as a church, that's what we're to lead others to know and do. And just like it is with identifying with Christ and his church, like, like it is with gathering with the church for worship and fellowship, becoming like Christ that's an essential mark of discipleship, to become like Christ in character. So first of all, as we look at this, first of all, you are loved. You are loved. Being made in the image of God, we, we humans, we understand, we seek out, we experience love. And we can see all kinds of examples, right? You see it in a mother's tender care for, for infant child. You see that love in the devotion of a husband who cares for the needs of his wife 60 years on in marriage, even though she, she no longer recognizes him. Or in a broad sense, that love for humanity in general, when a firefighter risks his own life to walk into a raging inferno, to rescue someone who is trapped. But we also know this, with, with any good thing, when we humans rebel against God, we, we corrupt the good things that God has given to us. The very word that describes God in his essence, love, that word has been so, so corrupted. Just some examples. The married person who abandons a covenant marriage, claiming it is for love. And I know I harp on this, but this is thrown in our faces, so we can't, we, we can't set this aside. The LGBTQ mantra, love is love. That's used to demand that others affirm and celebrate their, what the Bible describes as unholy affections. See, in this sense, love is a, a desire. In the sense the world uses it, in the corrupted sense, love is a, an affection for something entirely selfish, which disregards things that are objectively and eternally good. So we have to get this right. To be loved by God is to be the object of his affection. To be loved by God is to be the object of his favor, which, which results not only in the, inter the eternal good of the individual who's loved, right? 
Not only that, but chiefly, the greatest good in all creation, which is God's own glory. So when God loves, God displays his glory. So what is the proof, according to this passage, that you are a beloved child of God? And we look at our, our text this morning. It's knowing, as verse 2 says, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As the sentence says, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a, a packed phrase, much there. But some things to understand about God's love for us. First of all, it is beautiful. God's love for us, God's love for you is beautiful. He, he, Paul uses this, this picture, a fragrant offering. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. What's in view here is the, the temple sacrifice. And the smell of that sacrifice at the temple, this is in the Old Testament, right? What it did was it pointed to something wonderful. That smell of the sacrifice being, being burnt. It, it smelled of atonement. It smelled of removing the separation of God from his people. Now, it might be hard to get your head around that, but think of walking into, your, into a house, your house or another house, and, and the smell when there's a cake in the oven, right? Or when the turkey is just about done, there's that aroma. We don't live off that smell, but it points to something. Oh, something great is coming, right? That's the aroma of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus in its hideousness. It's not a beauty in itself, but it's a beauty in what it accomplishes. It's the fact that in that sacrifice, the beauty of God removing the barrier of sin between himself and his people. And Jesus' sacrifice is beautiful in what it accomplishes. God's love is beautiful. For, secondly, in this understanding God's love, God's love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It didn't come cheap. Christ gave himself up for us, it says in the verse. See, what Jesus did in, in becoming a man, he gave up the rights of his divine position. I remind you what it says in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who, listen to the wording, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, he held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, human, right? Being born in the likeness of man. God's love is costly. Huge sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, gave up his rights of divine position. Not only that, we know in the very nature of his death, he sacrificed his human life, right? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 continues. Jesus' death was hideous, absolutely hideous. Now, we have to acknowledge that dying by crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. It was a particularly cruel way to execute someone. The Romans had ab absolutely perfected that. What a skill to be great at. Torture, right? Horrible. So he sacrificed his human life, but he also sacrificed in his death on the cross. Jesus sacrificed his holy reputation. And this, I believe, is the greater suffering that Jesus endured. 
He suffered the ignominy of being treated as a criminal. Imagine that. The perfect son of God being regarded as a capital offender on display before people. Yes, before mankind, but even more so being regarded before the father as one who is guilty. When, when Jesus was dying, he echoed David's lament from Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt forsaken by God. And, and indeed, in some sense, he was. There's a song we sing, the father turned his face away. And I take it that the darkness that fell over the earth was in a sense a kind of a picture of God's looking away from the ugliness of the sin that Christ bore. Pure in every sense, the Son of God was. Yet every evil, every unrighteous thought indeed was heaped upon him as if it was his own. And the Father turned his face away. He sacrificed before all people and even before the Lord God, the Father, his holy reputation to carry the stain of sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I quote this often, for our sake, he, that is the Father, made him to be sin, who knew no sin. The Son of God became sin for us. And in, and in so doing, before before the Father, he, he became essentially a curse for us, as it says in Galatians 3.13. I know I'm piling on a lot of scripture, but just to get the weight of this, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. There is and there never will be a greater expression of love than the sacrifice of the Son of God to redeem his people. God's love is costly. Further, God's love is just. It's absolutely just. God does not brush away our sin as if it is nothing. God does not say, ah, no big deal. Don't worry about it. No, it is a big deal. Our sin is condemnable. All of our sins, the smallest of our sins, would make us worthy of an eternal punishment in hell. That is the nature of God's justice. And his love never sacrifices that justice. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. So he could not remain true to his character and brush aside sin. If he would do that, he would deny himself. The Son of God bore the full debt load of our sin. That's how God's justice was fully satisfied. We, we, we recite this often from that confession verse in 1 John 1.9. And we delight in the fact that God is faithful and just to forgive. Now, we might just run over that word just. He is just to forgive. He's not brushing it aside like, don't worry about it. God's justice was satisfied at the cross. So when he forgives your sin, he is fully justified in doing so because someone has paid for you 
someone has taken your place, and that is the Son of God. And because of that, God can and does cleanse from all unrighteousness when we do confess our sins. God's love is just. Further, God's love is first. God doesn't love you in response to your loving him. God does not love you in response to your efforts to clean yourself up. God does not love you because you got your act together. No, God loved you when you were unlovable and unworthy. That's the beauty of the love of God because it is first. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you because he set his affections on you and he will not fail to fulfill his promise. So, understand, you are beloved. You are loved. In Christ, you can never be more loved than you are right now. Never. And the love that God has for you that should change everything about you. God's love is a powerful love. God's love is a compelling love. It's an all-encompassing, life-defining, life-changing love. Disciple of Jesus, if you're seeking to become fully devoted follower of Christ, know you are loved with a beautiful sacrificial, just, and covenant love. And knowing that, walk in love. You are loved, so walk in love. That's the imitate God, walk in love. Now, to imitate God, you have to pay attention in how you walk, right? Meaning, you have to pay attention to how you do life. Now, if we don't read ahead, we're going to get this wrong. In what sense do we imitate God? I know it's said in love, but we have to think clearly about the ways in which we're tempted to think we might imitate God, right? God created man in his own image. And there are many ways that we might think of imitating God, right? If we get it wrong, the effects are absolutely disastrous. Adam and Eve were tempted to take of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? So they could be like God. They wanted to imitate God in, in his knowledge of good and evil. One of my favorite Disney animations is uh, Jungle Book. And in that, uh, that version, the Jungle VIP, he wants to be like Mowgli. Now, listen, I'm, I'm using this illustration. I'm acknowledging the underlying Darwinian assumptions here, but it's still entertaining. Anyway, uh, Cousin Louie sings this song. He says, I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town and be just like the other man. I'm tired of monkeying around. I want to be like you. I want to walk like you, talk like you. Too, if you know the song. <laughs> but, but what does Louis want? The reason he wants to be like Mowgli is because he wants his power, right? What I desire is man's red fire to make my dream come true. Give me the secret, man cub. Give me clue what to do. Give me the power of man's red flower so I can be like you. 
not understanding how we're to imitate, God has led so many astray. And, and just as an aside here, this is one of the things that the, they call themselves Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons as we know them. An entire religion built around a satanic lie. Now, this is men only. Like God, you too can have a planet to populate and rule. You can be God. So get yourself a wife and some sex, two or three, have lots of kids and get this thing started now. It's this idea, imitating God in his power, in his creation, in his rule over a world. So how we imitate God is, of course, not left to our, our imagination. The Apostle Paul does not leave us to figure out what it looks like. But we need to see the alternatives so that we don't go there. Because the key thing in imitating God is walk in love as Christ loved us. That's how we're to be imitators of God. Not in his power. Not in his desire to, not in his rule over all things so that we can somehow get our own space. Love, as Christ loved us, walk in it. That, may be the, that, that would be the pattern of your life, the way you live. To walk in love is really to imitate Christ's sacrifice for us. Of course, we understand this. God is not calling us to die a sacrificial death for sinners. We can't do that. But to walk in love like Christ, something does have to be sacrificed. Something does have to be given up. And what we are called to give up, and this is what this passage is dealing with, what we're called to give up is our identification and participation in the corrupt deeds of the world around us. That's what we're to sacrifice. That's what we're to give up. Verses 3 through 10, the Apostle Paul gives examples of behaviors that are really the opposite of walking in love. Now, I'll state them in the positive, but we'll look at them in a moment. Moral purity, that's walking in love. Contentedness, gratitude, and separation. Well, first, walking in love is moral purity. You must sacrifice your desires to feed your fleshly inclinations. Verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Proper, appropriate, among saints, among the set-apart people of God. Sexual immorality, that's one word in the original, porneia. You likely recognize that word. It's where we get the word pornography. And what that word describes is any and all unrighteous sexual activity. So that's adultery, sexual activity that is outside of marriage fornication, where there is not yet a marriage or there is no longer a marriage, sexual activity outside of that, outside of the covenant love, covenant bond of marriage. And that includes homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals. I mean, this is right from the definition in Strong's. Incest, use of pornography. All of that, all of that is in that list. That's sexual immorality. These things should not be named among the saints. They should not, we should not be known for these things. It is not proper. It is not appropriate. And if it is not appropriate to do these things, 
it's not appropriate to joke about them either. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now, I know this is, this, this is mind-blowing that this definition of sexual immorality, that it's somehow wrong to do what the world says, hey, just enjoy yourself. And I don't have time this morning to go into all of the reasons why God says that is sin. But for our purposes this morning, we've got to acknowledge that is not what believers are to be involved in nor are we to be joking about those things. Because when you joke about that with others, it's in a sense you're treating it like it's okay. The vicarious enjoyment of porneia through stories and anecdotes is really steps away from participation. You wear down your resistance to what God hates. You treat it as it's nothing. Walking in love is being content. Verse 3 continues, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper. So the opposite of that is contentedness. Coveting is that unrighteous desire that you have something instead of someone else. Oh, well, he's got that nice car. I wish he didn't have it and I had. That guy has that, got that promotion. I wish I had that and that he was where I am. Oh, you have a baby. I wish you didn't. I, listen, this is hard stuff. We're tempted with this all the time. But when you covet, what you're saying to God is that he has not done enough for you. That somehow God shortchanged you and inappropriately blessed your neighbor. That's coveting. When you covet, you break the 10th commandment. It's clearly laid out there. But contentment, that's the opposite. Contentment says, God, I trust you with what you've entrusted to me. What I have is what you've chosen for me. And that must be exactly what is right. Walking in love is contentment. Walking in love expresses Gratitude. Verse 4, it says, instead of these other things, let there be thanksgiving. Gratitude. Gratitude is, I would think, I, I'm, I'm confident of this. Gratitude is the greatest defense we have against bitterness and envy. When, when you meet someone who is envious and bitter, there's no gratitude. It, it's a kind of a poison. Now, I get it. If you've lost your job, if you've lost all your possessions, if your body is wasting away because of disease, if a loved one has died. Now, I'm not minimizing the suffering that attends to these circumstances. But listen, if you are in Christ, you have something eternally valuable to be grateful for. Thank your Father in heaven that you have an eternal inheritance with the Son of God. Walking in love means separation. I'll read it from verse 5. Be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. The one who 
does not walk in love is on a pathway to hell. That's ominous. It's true, though. So listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't join in. And what that means is that there must be separation. There are things that you should not, cannot do if you're walking in love. The Apostle Paul writes in another letter, 2 Corinthians, he says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? It's rhetorical. The answer is none. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Now, what does this mean practically? It doesn't mean living like the Amish. But for the sake of your own character, for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of walking in love, you must decide That there are places and people you might not be able to hang with or go if it leads you into unrighteous deeds. You've got to make some decisions. Walking in love means a measure of separation. So how do we do this? We're talking about becoming like Christ in character. What practical way do we have to actually become like Christ in character? Because I know it's hard. I know the experience of saying, trusting in willpower, okay, I won't do that thing again. And what do you know? You do it again. How do you get victory? See, it's not good news if I just said, well, you just got to try harder. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You'll, you'll get it. And, and for unbelievers looking in on this from the outside, you might be wondering how this works because these things in the world around us are so very compelling. They're so tempting. They appeal to our flesh. All of us have those temptations. None of us are immune. So so how is it that we can get any victory here? How is it that we can actually become like Christ? Understand this. What God commands, he empowers. What God commands, he empowers. Now, here the previous visible marks of discipleship come into play. Disciples of Jesus, fully devoted followers of Christ, they identify with Christ in his church. Why? Because we need to be known as belonging to Christ. We need the accountability of a church family to help us walk in love. So that's a help. We're a help to one another when we identify each other as belonging to Jesus. And we gather, we gather with the church for worship and fellowship because here in this gathering, we're we're reminded of the love of God in Christ. And the worship of God, what that does, it it stokes our affections for God. It stokes our desire to be with other believers who want to help us, whose example helps us. And the fellowship with other people makes the truth of the word of God stick somehow, helping us to walk in love. 
But beyond those, beyond that, the very nature of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what are we talking about here? The good news of Jesus. He is the Son of God who took on a human form. Truly God, truly man. Lived a sinless, perfect life. Was killed on a Roman cross in a most brutal way. There in that death, God the Father regarded that as a sacrifice for your sin. And for all who look to the Son of God in faith saying, you did that for me. Who trust. God gives eternal life. Now, the Bible says it is the power. That message is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power. Romans 1.16. So, this is past. That power was in the past, right? The salvation that was secured at the cross by Jesus' death, that's happened. It's done. So you're counted righteous in God's sight. Past tense, if you've believed. But in the present tense, that salvation is now empowered in Jesus' resurrection. In Christ, we are now, if you've believed, we're now new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And that new that has come is the fact that as a beloved child of God, you have not been left alone. Because you've been counted righteous in God's sight, the Spirit of God now dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you to motivate you to be holy, to convict you when you're not, and to drive you to true repentance. Listen, we all stumble. We all get this wrong. We all fall over ourselves and, and fall into sin again. That does not nullify what God has done for you. But if you're a true child of God, you recognize that because the Holy Spirit in you is saying, no, no, uh-uh, not that, nope. That's wrong. Repent, repent, repent. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. The Holy Spirit should annoy you. No, the Holy Spirit should, and I believe this, torment you until you own up before God. And why does he do that? Because God loves you. God doesn't torment those that don't belong to him now about their sin. They'll get their due punishment when the wrath of God is fully revealed. Praise God for the Spirit's torment now to bring you to that place where you confess before God, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God again. And then we'll throw ourselves at the mercy of, of Jesus who already died to pay for that sin. God the Father has not loved you any less because you stumbled. When you look to the cross, you're reminded again and again and again of the price that was paid for you. But the power is not just in the forgiveness of, of sins that we continue to stumble in. The power is actually being able to overcome that the next time. See, we become like Christ by abiding in Christ, John 15, meaning staying close. And we abide in Christ by staying under the authority of his word. Jesus said this in John 15, if you abide in me, 
and my words abide in you. Ask, listen to this, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now that's not carte blanche. In submission to the word of God, asking for whatever you wish, that has to do with obedience. Ask whatever you wish. Pray, Father, give me wisdom to avoid that temptation. Father, be gracious to me and bless me that I would hate my sin and love you more. Father, give me that. Give me a heart that loves your commands. And God's word promises that if we walk, if we promises that we can walk in love if we take advantage of the means he's given to us. And we, we recited this together, but it's so powerful. Listen, his divine power, that's God's, has granted to us all things, all things. Nothing is missing from all things. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything. God has granted. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That knowledge, what is that? Who Jesus is. The son of God took my sins to the cross. Rose again. Gives eternal life. He says, continuing in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And here's the power. So that through them, you might become, may, sorry, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Hear that. His divine power is granted to us all things that, that have to do with our life and godliness through the promises that he's given to us, the word of God, the gospel, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine. What is that? It's the love of God. It's walking in love having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, God has given us everything we need to become like Christ in character. Just take advantage of the means. It's the word of God. And, and maybe you're at the place where you go, well, I have trouble reading the Bible. How about praying this, God? Make me want to read your word. Drive me to read your Pray that. Listen, humans somehow have this, this um, idolatrous fascination with freedom. Freedom. I don't want freedom to sin. If I could have it, and God could bind me and stop me, I would take that any day. I don't want freedom. And in fact, we don't really have it because the Bible says that we're slaves to Christ. And the Holy Spirit within us actually drives us and moves us and motivates us to obey, to take on the character of Christ. Treasure that. The reason that becoming like Christ is an essential mark of discipleship is that because through Christ you have been given everything you need so that you can, you can imitate God and walk in love. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you are a lifelong learner of his, you are not at this point what you were. And you are not yet what you will be. You got to believe that. Know that you are loved, so walk in love. And as a church, it is our mission to lead others to do the same. And may that be our occupation until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, we want to be those people that walk in love. And there's so much in the world to avoid, but God, we know because your word says so, you've given us everything, everything we need. I pray as your people that we would delightedly take advantage of every means you give to us. Father, we want to be people that walk in love and so bring glory to the name of Christ. And we know your love, Father, is beautiful, it's sacrificial, it's just, it's covenantal. And Father, you call us to love others the way that you love. So empower us for that, that the world may know through us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.